Hi there, and welcome to Social Capital Matters. I'm your host, Kylie Taylor. On this show, we take a deep dive into the ideas around social capital by talking to business and industry leaders about how they use it to inspire their stakeholders and build a framework for long-term success. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Social Capital Matters. We have a really topical show for you this week, but first I'm joined by my producer, Greg, in Bangkok. Greg, how are you doing? Hey, Kylie, I'm doing well. Uh, I love that we're continuing to jump all over the world with our guests. It's really great to be able to do that. Today, we're talking to someone in Jakarta, Indonesia. So let's get right into it. Absolutely. We all know that transitioning to net zero is critical to developing a sustainable society, but how can this be done in a region dependent on fossil fuels for power generation? That's the dilemma we're going to be talking about today, and that's the dilemma for many of the developing and emerging nations of Southeast Asia, where fossil fuels account for more than 80% of the energy mix. Does decarbonisation look somehow different in Southeast Asia than it might look in other more developed parts of the world. So to delve into this further, I'm talking to Sasha Winsenried. He is the Energy Utilities and Resources Lead at PwC Indonesia. Sasha, thanks so much for joining me today on Social Capital Matters and welcome to the show. Before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, thank you, Kylie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so, yes, I, I lead PwC's Energy Utilities and Resources Practice here in Indonesia. Uh, I've been here for more than 20 years, uh, originally from uh, Perth in Western Australia. Um, so in addition to that, I'm also a, a board member of the Indonesia-Australia Business Council here in Indonesia. Um, helping to support, um, you know, bilateral investment between Indonesia and Australia. Um, and previously, um, I was a, a member of the, the board of directors of the Indonesian Mining Association. So two decades working in Indonesia, you would have seen and led a lot of change. And now change today is just on steroids for all of us. The implications of changes are massive in the world that you advise on and consult in, energy and resources. I can't think of any sector that's um, more dynamic right now. So for you, for PwC and your clients, as well as Indonesia and Australia more generally, your career has probably, I'm making a guess here, but it's probably taken you from being an, a proponent of fossil fuels and mining to actually an advocate for transition to renewable and a carbon zero future. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, I think I would agree with you that the change in this sector is um, ever increasing. Um, you know, the global mega trends, uh, including climate change, urbanisation, uh, digitalization all of these are affecting uh, the way the energy and resources industry operates uh, and uh, delivers its products to, to society. Uh, I'm not sure I would say I was ever a proponent for anything, but um, yes, over the years, uh, I've mostly uh, advised uh, oil and gas, mining uh, and power companies. And, you know, when I first uh, came to Indonesia, um, I was working with a lot of the large uh, 
uh, oil and gas majors, as well as the Indonesian state-owned oil company to increase uh, production, particularly uh, LNG. Uh, you know, Indonesia was one of the pioneers in the LNG industry, and um, there were a lot of projects around that. Secondly, um, you know, the, the, the coal industry took off in Indonesia during the early 2000s. Yeah. A lot of uh, companies listing on the stock exchange, raising financing to increase coal production, thermal coal production for power plants. And so at one point, Indonesia, I think, overtook Australia as the, the largest exporter of thermal coal uh, in the world. So that development uh, continued through the 2000s. And then a lot of investment in Indonesian infrastructure in recent years. And one of those sectors was the power sector. Um, yep. And given the vast resources of coal in the country and gas, um, a lot of those uh, power plants were, were coal-fired power or, or, or gas-powered. And, um, you know, that's really what's helped Indonesia uh, grow its economy. Uh, you know, just like globally, uh, energy is really what's driven, um, you know, the growth of the global economy and industrialization over the last uh, 100 plus years. And, um, you know, that's been the same in these emerging markets in recent years. And then since then, of course, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, investment in renewable energy. And uh, secondly, uh, more recently, um, in nickel for batteries, right? So that's yes. really a big uh, focus of Indonesia at the moment is becoming a, a hub for battery production and electric vehicles is really the plan. So, <clears throat> yes, there's a bit of a transition because now, uh, you know, most of my focus is actually around energy transition and helping um, some of these large players um with their uh, transition strategies and their, uh, you know, financing those strategies, as well as, you know, supporting the new push for, for development of a battery industry here. Um, Sasha, you've touched on a topic that I'm very keen to talk about. I mean, like you, I've been working in and around Asia for decades now, and there are some things that are definitely different in, in the emerging and developing economies that we need to be quite mindful of in our work. And um, one of the areas I wanted to talk about was the S in ESG. Now, there's been a lot of focus on the environment and on climate, but the reality is we need to, everything is interlinked and we need to think about the social component of some of these industries as well. Um, you, you've touched on already um, that the need for electricity and, and power um, for rising living standards, for productivity and for economic progress. And, you know, some of the markets that we operate in are, are used to brownouts, blackouts and needing to rely on generators. So there's definitely that demand for reliable power. And, you know, fossil fuels has been meeting that demand. Moreover, I've seen many examples where oil and gas and mining companies, power producers are the pillar of their community. Not only do they provide a lot of jobs, but they're providing community infrastructure as well, like healthcare and education services, and not just to their employees, but to generations upon generations of families. They might have um, three generations of a family um, benefiting from the work they're doing. And um, clearly, you know, conversely, we know that it's um, some of the poorer populations that are most impacted by climate change. And then on top of that, we've got concerns regarding worker protection too. And I know there've been some real concerns around things like the 
phase out of coal in the Philippines may lead to some of the problems that have been experienced in, say, places like India, where the decline in coal production is shifting workers from um, stable, permanent work towards riskier, informal and, and contract-based work. So we see all these competing tensions um, all the time. I, I just wanted to um, sort of put that out there and get your comments on that about what are the pain points and the bottlenecks that are either going to propel us towards faster transition or are going to hold the region back from transition. Yes, um, I agree with you. I mean, those those are some of the big challenges that that uh, are being faced now, in particularly in these developing markets. Uh, as you said, sometimes um, the, the the mining company or the oil and gas company is is the only large business in some of these areas, and the multiplier effect from their presence is huge. And sometimes that's uh, represents a significant portion of the, the regional economy. But, but first of all, I w- would say that, that most governments and businesses in the region uh, seem to be committed to transitioning from fossil fuels to cleaner forms of energy um, and have started to put those plans in place. Uh, however, as you mentioned, there are clearly economic and social considerations to consider, particularly for developing nations, uh, where the focus remains on growing GDP per capita and bringing the whole population out of poverty. Right. Um, so access to energy is obviously uh, key to achieve these objectives. So what we need to be talking about is a just and orderly energy transition. Right. No one right. should be left behind in this process. Right. So we often refer to the energy trilemma, uh, the com- competing objectives of energy security, uh, affordability and sustainability. Yeah. Emerging uh, markets, energy security and affordability remain the key factors with sustainability really coming a poor third. But even though richer countries are talking more and more about environmental sustainability and climate issues, um, in the advent of the Russia-Ukraine war, for instance, uh, when there were severe shocks uh, in energy supply markets, even some of the most developed nations prioritised quick access to fossil fuels to avoid power blackouts. So this is really the the tension that we have when we start to talk about uh, the transition. I think the key point here is that climate change and therefore energy transition is a global issue. Uh, the developed yep. nations are going to have to support developing markets, not just with financing, but also uh, open or easy access to new technologies and expertise. Uh, and this needs to come quickly if the world has any chance of meeting its, its climate change reduction targets. And, and as you mentioned, at the same time, there needs to be plans to support communities which are heavily reliant, for instance, on coal mining or oil and gas, where there may be less demand in the future. So this means reskilling employees, improving education levels, um, and diversifying the economies in some of these areas so they are not so heavily reliant on fossil fuels, um, encouraging and funding new types of businesses, etc., and bringing new technologies to these these countries. So. You know, the, the world and the developed economies have a big role to play in this, uh, not just supporting funding the energy transition, you know, construction of renewables, etc., but supporting in uh, transition of communities so that we have this uh, sort of just energy transition, a fair energy transition, rather mm. than um, leaving certain parts of the world behind. 
The topic of a, a just and fair transition um, always gets a lot of airtime, for example, at the, the COP meetings. And at last year's COP28, there was a, a lot of discussion around you know, compensation for developing countries who have been impacted by climate, but also um, voluntary investments in funds to help um, accelerate um, mm-hmm. new technologies into those markets. Do you see those sort of forums um, having a big impact and, and playing a role in moving this forward? Or, you know, are the developed nations just pulling the ladder up? Well, I, you know, I would say these importance and these forums are important for, for coming through with some of these initiatives. I mean, as we discussed, you know, just and orderly transition is, is the most important thing. I mean, the developing world cannot be prevented from uh, improving living standards. So it will be important that there's support from, from governments and international development agencies such as the World Bank uh, to de-risk investment in developing nations and support governments in implementing policy uh, and improving institutional capacity so that they can actually receive large funding support. So this would include both support for decarbonisation, such as early retirement of coal-fired power and development of renewables. Um, One significant challenge in Indonesia, for instance, um, is the large number of coal-fired power plants with long-term offtake agreements or or power purchase agreements with the state power utility, right? If these plants are to be retired early, uh, the investor needs to be compensated for the lost cash flows and the investment return, right, because they've signed up to to long-term agreements. One one initiative, I guess, at COP26, uh, a group of developed nations and large international banks uh, developed the, the Just Energy Transition Partnership for Indonesia, yep. uh, which provides $20 billion of funds to support the transition in Indonesia. But of course, this is only the tip of the iceberg when some estimate that Indonesia alone needs to spend uh, roughly $20 billion per annum um, up to 2030 to achieve its target for decarbonisation, right? Which are, we're talking very large sums. Yeah. A similar program yeah. has been set up for South Africa and Vietnam, but again, the institutional and policy-making frameworks in these countries need to be strengthened to allow the funds to flow and to achieve the objectives that um, and the outcomes that are expected. Uh, but these programs need to move faster if we're going to achieve uh, global decarbonisation targets. Um, I think the other uh, important thing to discuss is, is, is the role of the mining industry in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, critical minerals such as copper, nickel, manganese, cobalt, Lithium um, are key to electrification and energy transition. You know, a wind or a solar power plant needs more than 10 times the quantity of metals of a traditional gas or coal-fired plant. Um, And electric vehicles obviously need significantly more metals than an internal combustion engine because because of the battery. Most analysts believe we're not mining enough of the critical minerals needed to achieve the world's carbon reduction targets in the timeline set. But of course, the mining needs to be done in the most sustainable way, which also potentially adds costs and delays to the process. So this is another challenge. So I think, you know, what I'm trying to say is whether it's out of these kinds of forums or global cooperation on the energy transition um, needs to be strengthened in a lot of areas across the whole supply chain, um, not just talking about um turning off coal-fired power and turning on something else, right? Where do you see right now um, bright spots? Do you see any particular um, great projects emerging or pieces of cooperation that are leading to impacts and results that you think are the real heroes of this transition? I mean, we're starting to see more and more 
initiatives and more and more investment, obviously, in the transition, whether that be in, um, you know, batteries or whether that be in um, some of the technologies for hard to abate areas such as hydrogen or or carbon capture and storage and things like that. So, um, and I would say that it's actually the large energy producers, the oil and gas and mining companies, are actually beginning to take a lead in some of these areas, right. given um, this is integral to the long-term sustainability of their businesses, right? The other thing I would say is that private capital investment, whether that be private equity, venture capitalists and the like, um, are very keen to support these kind of projects and are getting uh, you know, funds from yep. uh, institutions or family offices and others and aggregating those to provide um, blended finance for... Uh, decarbonisation projects in places like Indonesia. And while I think a lot of those are still uh, embryonic in nature, I mean, they, they, those kind of initiatives are coming and, 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 and could be quite positive. I think technology is the key. And now that we see all the investment coming, we will see technology that not only helps us roll out more renewables, but also reduce the carbon emissions on existing fossil fuels, right? So whether that's carbon capture and storage or, or other yep. technologies, because the fact of the matter is more than 50% of the globe's electricity comes from fossil fuels, it's not going to be turned off overnight, right? So we need to find a way to reduce the carbon emissions coming while we build up the, um, the renewable energy. One of the issues you touched on there um, was the role of large oil and gas um, investing in the energy transition, and they are well-placed to invest in the energy transition. That does create a lot of commentary and criticism from time to time that, you know, they're not doing enough and they could be doing a lot more and, you know, they're still hanging on to their um, fossil fuel um, industries for too long because they're not incentivized to get out of them quick enough and it's just sort of a form of greenwashing. Um, how do you deal with those sort of criticisms if, if you're dealing with that with some of your clients that you're working with? Yeah, so I think this is a point where these producers of fossil fuels or energy companies need to have a very clear strategy on the path they're taking and communicate that strategy well to all stakeholders, right? So I think this is where the fall down actually is because, I mean, as we discussed, um, with fossil fuels currently fueling, um, you know, the majority of the global economy, the, you know, there is no option for them to to get out of that sector immediately, right? The world needs um, these resources, but they need them delivered in a more sustainable way, right? So the uh, these large companies need to be able to explain that. And at the same time, how are they investing uh, in the, the energy transition? Um, for instance, um, you know, we've seen a lot of the large global mining players divest of their, their coal assets, right? Um, yep. Does that mean those assets go away and the carbon emissions from the power are removed from the atmosphere? No, they're in the hands of somebody else who sees a, a financial opportunity to um, those assets, right? And whether they manage those assets as responsibly as some of the large players do is also another question, right? So yep. is it appropriate to exit you know, some of these businesses at haste? Without clear plans, it's uh, perhaps uh, there's a question around that, right? So I think the point is, uh, you know, there needs to be a very clear 
transition transition plan for the businesses as well as for, 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 for society as a whole, right? So that's one of those sort of unintended consequences, yes. isn't it? And it just demonstrates how interconnected everything is. Um, we certainly spend a lot of time working with organisations to try and navigate a path through some of these very, very tricky issues. Mm-hmm. And I know we, we're constantly um, um, looking at um, the whole issue of greenwashing because, I mean, no one wants to be um, accused of uh, greenwashing. Mm-hmm. It, no one sets out with that intention. And we very similar to what you've just said, we're always focusing on we really need to be transparent. We need to get the intentions out and the commitments, get the facts on the table, make sure it's verifiable. And just really, um, you know, I can't, emphasize enough the the transparency and the need to keep explaining things and make sure it's verified because um without that it's really half the the job sometimes i think is communications half the job is doing the business and um, making the sustainable decisions and operating more sustainably but the other half of the job is actually making sure that you take the stakeholders on the journey with you and that everyone's really clear about what you're doing because these there's a lot of room for misunderstanding and and these unintended consequences emerging i think that's absolutely right um uh, and there are more and more, you know, regulations coming out around the world from whether it's the stock exchanges or the, yeah. the financial regulators on the kind of sustainability reporting that um, uh, companies should be doing. Um, you know, we, we've got an issue globally that there is a, a, a mishmash of regulations and different standards that people are using. Um, so there's no clear compar- comparability between organisations and 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 this is, I think, sometimes where the misunderstanding can, can arise and, and, and the accusations of greenwashing at times. At the same time, then, um, just like financial statements, I think, uh, eventually regulators are going to want some form of assurance on these reports so that, um, you know, stakeholders, investors, the community at large can uh, have more confidence in some of this information that's being put out there and, and more understanding around it. And that that is a big challenge, right? I mean, it's easy for us to say that yeah. companies should have systems in place, et cetera, et cetera. So, for instance, you know, over, you know, more than 100 years since the, the SEC was formed in the US, you know, companies have been building up systems and controls around financial information. We don't have those kind of systems around greenhouse gas emissions and um, and those kind of measures that companies need to report, right? So this is talking about building sophisticated systems for data collection, yeah. for, um, you know, uh, controls over that data collection so that companies can be confident in reporting those publicly and, and all these kind of things. So this is a whole nother <laughs> Um, challenge in the whole whole process, right? But but I think if we bring this back down to basics and the core concept, right? Uh, you know why are we talking about this? Well, companies need to look at this not just as a compliance thing that they have to do because regulators are saying so, but as actually an opportunity for their businesses, right? Because if they're the first movers doing this very well um, and reporting it well. That's going to have, an, and I think it's been shown that that improves um, their stock prices, right, and, and the value of their companies. At the same time, when you put in place these kind of initiatives for efficiency around energy use, you can cut costs and actually improve the bottom line. So there, there are a lot of 
business benefits from a positive effect. Well, I think that's the only sort of sustainability that works, isn't it? The sustainability that is good business because right. that means it's sustainable and it will and it will attract the capital and it will um, be prioritised. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just looking across the Southeast Asian markets, um, w- what are you seeing in terms of um, targets and, and goal setting? I know um, we've, it, it, you know, it's absolutely critical that there is the regulatory environment and the political um, will, and and companies need that to be able to to move forward. Um, you know, we saw we've seen in different parts of the world, for example, the UK taking a bit of a, a U-turn on its green targets and, and that's going to be challenged by environmental groups. Whereas, um, you know, Thailand's new government, on the other hand, is even trying to accelerate um, the green targets, the net zero targets and get to them quicker. Just, I mean, I know you're mainly focused on Indonesia, but just generally, are you seeing a, a desire from the emerging economies to get there quicker or uh, are you seeing more of a can we just take this slowly slowly what's the the sentiment i guess i'm asking the vibe what's the Mm. vibe no i i think the 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 sentiment is that um you know most uh, countries have committed to uh, the energy transition and they've put in place uh, some kind of targets generally they would like to get there as fast as possible because they've acknowledged the need um but they want to do that in a just and orderly fashion, right? So they cannot put at risk um, economic development, cannot put at risk, um, you know, blackouts or brownouts, um, which yeah. are going to have political consequences in, um, you know, if, if, if power prices go up too much or you start to have brownouts, you start to have people protesting on the streets, right? Sure. That, that, yeah. that is then another social uh, context. Um, I would say, I mean, you mentioned the UK, but I mean, there are, and this is a big election year in 2024, actually, because we have the, the US, we have um, Indonesia, yep. um, you know, uh, and some other big economies around the world. So, you know, you do start to see some, I guess, um, inconsistent you know, discussions uh, that, that start to, to move away from the stated policy of some of these countries. Um, Sasha, as an Australian who spent two decades in Indonesia and working across Southeast Asia, what's what do you see as the role for Australia in all of this? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting because Indonesia and Australia are both, um, have both been resource-based economies, right? Um, both yeah. have been um, exporters of um, minerals and, and oil and gas. So there are some similarities in the, in the transition. Obviously, Australia with a much smaller population and a much higher GDP per capita uh, is in a different position than Indonesia in, in the transition. But we also saw in Australia that it had been relatively slow for some time, right? The, the acknowledgement that it needed to be done and that financing and regulation uh, coming into play. But I think now Australia, I would see, is moving very fast in this space and it's coming predominantly from private investment, right? Um, yeah. And private sector seeing this as, as a big opportunity. And hopefully um, those investors, when they you know, as they develop this technology, look to markets like Indonesia with, with a population of 10 times Australia as another opportunity for them to, um, first of all, support energy transition in a neighbouring country, uh, but secondly, to, um, you know, grow their businesses from 
um, you know, uh, sharing this technology um, and, and, and providing uh, financial support where they can. And I think some of the large, um, you know, financial institutions in, in Australia, uh, some of the funds are, are already looking at countries like Indonesia for, um, you know, infrastructure investment, particularly in the energy transition space. So I think that could be uh, one area. Um, the other area is, uh, is, is I think, support in, um, in some of the technology, particularly probably around rollout of, of solar power, um, rooftop solar and that kind of thing. But, you know, we know Australia is still on the journey as well. Um, yep. Actually, per capita, I think Australia is a much larger emitter than um, Indonesia because it is a developed economy, right? And, um, yep. you know, it, it needs to get its uh, emissions down rapidly as well, at the same time as trying to help the rest of the world with its transition by uh, mining critical minerals and gas, perhaps, for, for as a transition fuel and things like that. So Australia has quite a challenge itself, I think. But uh, Indonesia has those same uh, kind of challenges that a resource uh, nation sees. But what I would see as a real potential is, as I said, Indonesia with this huge population and, and the largest um, production of nickel in the world right now or the largest resources of nickel, yeah. um, uh, a focus on the battery industry, looking at becoming a hub for uh, both battery and electric vehicle manufacturing. Um, you know, Australia has an opportunity to, to participate in that, particularly given that it is a large producer of lithium, right? Yes. Um, and that's needed. Indonesia is going to have to import that. So a bilateral um, investment proposition between Australia and Indonesia for development of the battery industry in Indonesia, decarbonisation of that industry as well, so that it's not using fossil fuels in producing the batteries and the vehicles. I think that would be a massive opportunity for Australia. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to watch that space very closely. Um, Sasha, before we're out of time, um, at the end of our interviews, we always ask the um, interviewee if there's any sort of final comments or, or takeaways that you would like to to leave with the listeners today. And, you know, I think you've given us a really a, a fantastic rundown on some of the issues and, and also the opportunities contained within the decarbonisation journey across Southeast Asia and the opportunities for Australia as well. Is there any sort of um, guidance you would give to organisations who want to position themselves as part of this decarbonisation journey? I think what's important um, is that businesses and investors uh, don't look at ESG or, or climate change uh, as areas of compliance or a cost to the business, uh, but rather as an area of value creation, as, as yeah. we discussed. Um, all yeah. businesses need to have a strategy on how to reduce their own carbon emissions and make the business more sustainable. But also there are huge opportunities to invest in the energy transition in almost all sectors, uh, whether that be energy production and supply or electrification, as we discussed, but also areas such as um, efficiency and energy use, infrastructure for electric vehicles. Uh, there are a lot of different opportunities, critical minerals, as we discussed. So in the end, companies cannot afford uh, not to build this into their long-term strategy as investors will demand it. Um, early movers could have an advantage and really see value creation for their businesses at the same time as helping society. So I think um, this is a unique 
unique uh, position we're in, um, you know, in 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 this new uh, millennium, and it is a real opportunity for, for for businesses to you know create value and 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 create sustainable businesses that that help society. Well, that is a very strong and positive message to end on. Thank you for those uplifting um, thoughts at the end there. And thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thanks, Sasha. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, Greg, that was a fantastic chat about something that affects nearly every part of our lives. It was good to explore what a just and orderly transition looks like in developing economy and especially interesting when he said generally everyone wants to get to net zero and wants to get there as soon as possible but developing countries cannot put at risk the standard of living and if they do there will potentially be political instability that's yeah. you know really clear isn't it yeah, I never thought of it from that angle before, but it's definitely a real worry. It's it's an incredibly delicate balance with real consequences if things go wrong. And you know, one of the things he said as well was that no one should be left behind. And that's a really good lens to look at this issue through. Um, another good point he made was also about the, the transition. Just because a fossil fuel company is divesting from coal assets doesn't mean the emissions magically go away, you know. Exactly, just, exactly. Just go somewhere else. Yeah, someone else is just going to make them. So th this just goes to show how complex every issue is. You know, it's 10 times more complex than we think it is. Uh, it, um, it certainly is. Look, I, and, you know, through discussions like this, we're all learning all the time. Uh, and it does demonstrate to me the big role for communications to help show the challenge that developing economies are facing and to help build support for solutions that will help them on a transition in a way to make sure, to use Sasha's line, to make sure no one is left behind. Right, right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Make sure to check out the other episodes in our series. We've got great conversations with some of the brightest minds out there discussing the important issues in the world of social capital. See you next time. Social Capital Matters has been a production of Baldwin Boyle Group, hosted by Kylie Taylor and produced and edited by Greg Jorgensen. Find more episodes in our ongoing series on baldwinboyle.com slash podcasts, watch on YouTube, or listen wherever you find your podcasts.